You're listening to the First Corinthians When Immaturity Meets Worldliness series preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning. And we will start together at verse number 1. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by himself in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gathering when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality or your gift unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. We met last time two weeks ago in this text, and uh, I think if you'll remember, there are a couple topics that are maybe a little hidden under the surface. I'll just touch on them and then re- review what really the message was. But, but in this passage of Scripture, again, we see Paul speaking about worship of the local church. He reminds us that the early church came together early on the first day of the week to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my friend this morning, you you must understand, I believe you do understand, without the resurrection of Christ, there is no purpose of this morning. There is no purpose of Christianity. You you cannot take Jesus and what he said and what he did out of Christianity. There is no Christianity. And so Paul says, the church, the early church met together the first day of the week on Sunday to celebrate that. He also makes reference to the autonomy of the church. He says, here's what I've asked you to do. Then you folks figure out what you want to do. And as an apostle of Christ... I'll follow what you say. And it reminds us that the local church, the body of believers, are responsible for the church. The congregation is to rule. And then, of course, verses 1 through 4, as we compared the story with the end of the story, the rest of the story in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we find in this text in 2 Corinthians a theology of giving. A theology of giving for the believer. And we said last, two weeks ago actually, that that giving is an active response to the grace of God. That we give, and when we give, it's an active response to the grace that we have already experienced. You know the verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich and rich in every way imaginable, rich in glory, rich in praise, rich in honor, rich in just deity and glory and beauty. Yet, for your sake, for my sake, he became poor that we, through his poverty, and when he says poverty, he means giving everything his lifeblood, that you, that me, through his poverty, might be made rich. And so, Understanding God's grace, we have to respond by giving, by giving. And, and, and the more we come in contact with God's grace and try to understand it and plumb the depths of it, the more it speaks to our heart and the more we give. Not just about money, but our very selves, our time, our treasures, our, cha- our talents. And then the other idea of this theology of giving is that it proves the sincerity of our love. We can give without loving. We do it all the time. Ever hear of taxes? Is there anybody that loves to give their taxes? No. We can 
give without loving. But the truth is, we cannot love without giving. And when I love, I have to give. I have to give. And again, let me remind you this morning, uh, for, for those who are here maybe for the first time or visiting, it's like, here we go. The church is talking about money. And, and yes, we are talking about money. We're talking about more than that. When the Bible speaks of giving and responding to grace, it's giving ourselves. It is giving our time. It is giving our talent. It's just giving. And when we give, it proves the sincerity of our love. So I come in contact with God's grace. I respond. I give. Can I tell you something this morning? As a church family, as a body, you should look for opportunities to express God's grace to one another by giving. When there's a funeral, you should give of your time and come to support God's people. When someone's moving and you have nothing going on, you ought to come and help them move, especially if I'm moving. When you have an opportunity to give to a young couple who has nothing and have a newborn baby, you ought to give to that. It proves the sincerity of our love. And the outside world sees it and says, hey, there's something different about those folks. And then finally, in this theology of giving, when we minister to others, God's people, um, we minister ultimately to God. When I give, whether it's my time, my talent, my energy, my life, my money, and I don't plan on a return profit from what I just did, I'm not planning on someone recognizing it and patting me on the back, and I give like that and I serve people, ultimately I am ministering to the God of heaven. Matthew 25, Jesus said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And so that's the theology of giving in verses 1 through 4. Let's move on now, verses 5 through 9. And this is Paul's itinerary. He says, Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. And this is pretty straightforward. It's like Paul's just saying, I'm wrapping the letter up now. I'm telling you what's going on. This, these are my plans for the future. And what he says to the Corinthian church is, I've written you a letter. I want to see you, but I can't see you now. I plan on staying in Ephesus until Pentecost. Straightforward, easy enough. Now here's why Paul wants to stay in Ephesus. Look at verse number 9. For a great door and effectual is opened unto me. And, and Paul says, okay, Corinthian church, I'm about to wrap this up. I want to see you. I'm not going to see you because I'm going to stay in Ephesus. And the reason I'm staying in Ephesus is because there has been presented to me an unbelievable opportunity. A wide door is open for effectual gospel working. And Paul is telling them, there's something happening. I want you to know about it. I am staying in Ephesus. One of the great things about the Word of God and the epistles, especially of Paul's epistles, is that when he makes mention of places, we can go back to the book of Acts and find out exactly what he's talking about. Because what was going on in Ephesus certainly is a wide and effectual door. And I believe this morning, if we go back and look at what Paul is saying, why he is staying where he's staying to the Corinthians, it will mean something to us this morning. 
There is a fantastic principle here that Paul is going to reveal that we as believers today, where we live, need to get. And so, take, hold your place in Corinthians. We'll be back there in a moment. But I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 19 this morning. Paul says, there's gospel ministry happening in Ephesus. I cannot leave. And here in Acts chapter 19, starting at verse number 8, he, we, we find exactly what Paul is talking about in Corinthians. Verse number 8. And he, Paul, went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude. Let me just stop there. It, I, I think it's fascinating that, that Paul says, or Luke says, that, the, that people on the outside began to speak evil of that way or the way. And it gives us insight about how the early church was recognized. You know, I, I know you know, that the word Christian means little Christ. It was given to Christians as a derogatory term saying, oh, you're a little Christ. He is your master. He is your Lord. And you are trying to live like him. When we look at you, we see Christ. Which ought to remind us this morning, as Christians, we are little Christ. That's what the name means. And, and so when people look at us today in the 21st century, when they say, oh, you are a little Christ, they should mean you are trying to follow your master in what he says and what he did. But, but then the early church was known as the people of the way. The way. Which, which I've seen churches like, the way. It's like, oh, the way church. What are they talking about? But, but it means you are people of the way, the way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so early Christians were known as the people of that way, the way of salvation, and along with that, I believe, the way of life in relationship to God. That we are people of that way, the way of knowing salvation, of knowing real life, of real joy. And that was the early church. By God's grace, that should be our church. We should be known as people, Christians, of that way. And so there starts to be a little pushback here. Uh, verse number nine. Uh, let's see, where am I at now? People of, depart from them. But when, okay, hardened, spake evil against that way. Before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And Tyrannus is interesting. It, he's a teacher, a philosopher in, in, Ephesus, in Ephesus. And, and uh, Tyrannus means the tyrant to us. So this was like your eighth grade English teacher, right? The tyrant to us. He was known for that. And so Paul and the, the disciples go there. They rent his space. And this continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. If you've been listening at all to our church, you say, okay, wait a minute. Luke just says, Paul had an apron, he had a handkerchief, and people took it, and people were healed. What's the difference between what Paul is doing and what you have a problem with with the charismatic movement? Because if you ever watch the Christian television, you'll have a guy like Benny Hinn who will have a handkerchief 
and it's a prayer cloth, and if you buy it for 100 bucks, you might just get 1,000 in return, or he promises to heal everybody. So what's the difference? Why can you be for Paul and what happened here and against Benny Hinn? Well, I'm glad you asked the question, and so I'll just take a moment to explain that to you. Okay? Hold your place there. I'm gonna, just stay there. I'm going to turn. It's important for us to look at Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, and you'll see it here. But, but this gives us some insight on how Christians viewed the early church and what happened, especially in the book of Acts. Verse number 3 says, For this man was counted worthy. No, it's, I'm sorry, it should be chapter 2. I have it here. Let me read it. Chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? It's the beginning of the church. By the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Early church, Christ spoke, and the words of Christ were confirmed by those that heard him. Those were the apostles. And it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews writes as if this is in the past, because he says in verse number 4, God also bearing them, the apostles, witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And so we come to the book of Acts, and here is Paul, handkerchiefs and aprons being taken, people are being healed. What's the difference between that and Benny Hinn? Let me give you three ideas. One, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Benny Hinn is not. Not even in the slightest. Number two, Paul wasn't selling his handkerchiefs for money and furnishing his lavish lifestyle. I know some of you people get uncomfortable when you start talking about the charismatic movement, and I'm not saying I hate charismatics because I don't, but you better open your eyes when people are fleecing the poor in our churches for their benefit. It's problematic. This is not what Jesus intended. And number three, Paul is in the book of Acts in the first century as an apostle. Benny Hinn is not. The book of Acts is a very transitional portion. What God is doing is confirming his word that Jesus literally got up. They're preaching this gospel to people who were not in Jerusalem, and it's being confirmed by their signs and miracles. That's what's happening. And so I'm glad you asked. Let's move on, though, this morning. Okay, It was just there. You saw it there. I saw it there. We had to deal with it, all right? So... Verse 13, then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits uh, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preached. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, the chief of the priest, which did so. And here's what's happening. Paul's doing these wonderful things. There's a group of people who see it, and they want to duplicate this without the power of God. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Did you imagine? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Did you imagine? I personally think that would be hilarious. That's just the way my mind works. I'm, I'm always one to click on, you know, bullies getting beat up on Facebook and all these things that happen. And I think to see this would be the talk of the town. Here's a guy who said, come out from them. I adjure you by Jesus and Paul. And here's a voice that says, who in the world are you? I don't know who you are. And they attack this guy. They rip his clothes off and he runs home naked. I think it's a fascinating story. 
Verse 17. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. And just with this perspective this morning, people are getting saved, they're being converted, their lives are changing which is the way it's supposed to happen. And when it changes, they say, listen, we are, we are wrapped up in this worldly um, activity with curious arts and magic and the, and the occult and those things, and we're done with that, so we're bringing our books, and we're going to burn this stuff. And they burn it, and the price is 50,000 pieces of silver, which is the equivalent of one day's wage. So think this morning how much you make in a day. Okay, Maybe you make 80 bucks a day. Maybe you make 160 a day. Maybe you make 200 a day, or like me, 10,000 a day. Okay. Take that amount and multiply it by 50,000 days' wages. Even if you make 80 bucks, that's a lot of money. And it all goes up in smoke. People are very serious about their faith. Verse 20 So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And here is Paul, and, and, and listen, he says, I'm staying in Ephesus because here's what's happening. Paul is preaching the word of God. I mean, he's, and he's confronting false ideas, false philosophies. God is performing extraordinary works. Jesus is being magnified, and people are really being converted in, in such a manner that when they're saved, their lives are being radically changed. I mean, hey, there's Joe so-and-so, and there's sister so-and-so, and before that, they were crazy, they were wicked, they were evil, and now they are being changed. There's a lesson here for us as well. In this, in this time of easy believism, that you just add Jesus to your life and everything becomes better, and you don't have to change, it's nonsense. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He says, sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven. And that's what's happening. The word of God is being proclaimed. Everyone's hearing what's being said. Churches are being founded. And we would say that this is a city-wide revival. That's what's happening. Now, let me say to you this morning, I want you to remember why this is happening. It's happening first because the word of God, the unadulterated word of God, is being proclaimed. My friend, listen to me this morning. It is not music. It is not in entertainment. It is not in programs. If we are ever going to see the power of God, it will only come by the preaching of the word of God. And that's what's happening. Paul is preaching the word, and God's people are being purified. They're serious now. They, they see what they used to be. They see what they are now. And all of the hindrances in their life, they're getting rid of. They don't want to mess with it. It pales in comparison to the beauty of Christ. And when this happens, it is a citywide revival that breaks out to be a revival that impacts the entire world. And, and, and my problem as I read these things is, I, I think for myself and maybe for you, we forget the excitement of first being saved. Do you remember when you first trusted Christ? I mean, just think for a moment. Think back to that day. Think about where you were at. Think about the burden that came off your shoulders. Think about the love that you experienced knowing that Christ died for you. And think about your attitude where you thought, 
I could tell the world about this. I want to tell the world about this. This is the greatest news that ever happened, and we want to tell everybody, anybody that we could find, look at this is what Christ has done. And what happens over time is we get comfortable. Oh, I witnessed to them one time. I'm done. My circle is closing now. I only have Christian friends, and I'm finished. That's not what's happening in Ephesus. It went crazy. And Paul says, i got to tell you something. Corinthian church, I am staying in Ephesus, and who wouldn't stay? Right? I would stay. It's like, this is great. This is fantastic. I am staying. I am greeted with this great opportunity. That's not the surprising part I find about this story. Look back in our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning. We agree with Paul. This is great. Let's stay. But back in 1 Corinthians 16, in the very same breath where he says, there is great opportunity, he makes this statement. For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversities. Paul said, I want you to know something. I am staying in Ephesus because it is fantastic. I mean, it's fantastic what's happening. And I'm also staying because it's frustrating. There is opportunity and there is opposition. And Paul certainly had opposition. It says in the text that we just read, they were hardened. They were stubborn. It means they were hard-headed. Do you know anybody who's hard-headed? I would never say this because I'm not Dutch. But I have Dutch friends who say these things. They say things like this. Wooden shoes. Wooden head, wouldn't listen. Right? I wouldn't say that. I would never say that. But our Dutch and Frisian friends often say that. And what they mean is, that guy's a hard head. And we think of Ephesus, and we think of Paul preaching, and everyone's sitting there, and he's preaching to the choir. And they're all saying, amen, glory to God, Paul, keep it up. That's not what was happening. He's proclaiming the gospel. There's gospel ministry happening. He's living out the gospel. And guess what? There are people who are not happy. There are people who are hardened. There are people who are angry at what is being said. And Paul says, I am staying here because there's opportunity, and I am staying here because there's opposition to what I'm doing. When I was a kid, just just 15 years old, 16, my father-in-law, who always had um, ministry in nursing homes, I think one of the first times I ever preached was in a nursing home. And if you want to be humbled, you ought to go to a nursing home and preach. And, and I went in, and we, we would meet in like where the fellowship hall was. It was their dining hall. They had one big, huge TV screen there. And we'd go in on a Sunday afternoon, and we would go in and shut the TV off and start our services. And we'd sing some hymns, and then my father-in-law introduced me, and, you know, I'm, I'm 15 years old, right? 16. And I opened up the Bible, I started to preach. You remember those guys on the Muppets, those two old men on the Muppets? <laughs> You remember those guys? They're hecklers, right? And, and so here you're, you're preaching away, right? And you're, you're giving it all, and you're, you're going, and, it's, it's, you know, and people are sitting there. And in a nursing home, it's funny. Half of them are taking off their clothes. They're, they're messing them. It's just it's, it's a lot of distractions. And in the middle of this, two old men in the back, I swear they're the Muppets, they start saying, turn the TV back on. <laughs> it's, it's discouraging, really discouraging. 
And here's Paul preaching away, and we have this idea that everyone's with him. They're not. There's some people saying, turn the TV back on. This is terrible. He finds great opposition. They didn't believe. They spoke evil of the way. They besmirched his name. They defamed Christianity. It was not easy in Ephesus. He says for two years they were teaching. And I think we miss this sometimes. When when Paul says, we left the synagogue, we had to find a place to meet. The place we met was the the house of one or the school of one, Tyrannus. It means that he was renting a space that was already being used by this philosopher. And the only time he could use that space was in downtime when they weren't using it. And just let you know, during this time, that the philosophers and teachers would teach until 11 a.m., take a break until 4 p.m. They would do that because it's hot, they were tired, they would eat, and they would rest. And Paul says, in Ephesus, you know what I did for two years? I gathered disciples, and the time that everyone else was sleeping and refreshing themselves and eating, we were studying God's word. And we did it for two whole years. Hey, I'm staying in Ephesus, great opportunity, but I want you to know something. I'm also staying because there's great opposition here. If we were to read the rest of the chapter, in chapter 19, we find that after two years, a riot breaks out. And in this riot, they have this mob mentality, you've seen it. Half the people don't even know what they're rioting about, they're just breaking into stores and stealing TVs. And it gets really hairy there at the city. And for two hours, they're shouting, great is Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul says, this is why I'm staying. A wide door has been opened for me, a great door. But I want you to know, there is adversity, there is hostility, there is opposition. Opposition. I want you to see that Paul was not surprised by this. Matter of fact, Paul expected it. And here's the lessons we need to learn this morning. Life is hard. Is there anyone that just heard that for the first time? Life is hard. And Paul has a realistic idea about how this life works. And there's great opportunity. And there's opposition. And he's realistic. My dear brother and sister, some of us, we are so unrealistic about this life. Some of you this morning, you're sad because you're sad. And you're surprised that bad things happen to good people. And there's inequity in life. And Paul said, I want you to know something. This is the reality. He was not surprised, and it did not become a stumbling block to him. But he stayed. He stayed. When we commit to gospel proclamation and gospel-centric living. And what I mean by that is the gospel is really changing our lives. It's really making a difference. By the very nature of the gospel itself, we can expect opposition. Anytime you proclaim the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, it naturally meets with opposition. It meets with it personally. Do you know why? Because the gospel of Christ, what is proclaimed truly and accurately, always topples people and their, their ideas and their views and what they think is right. There's a battle over the will of the individual and the will of God. And when you tell people that they are sinners in need of a Savior, that they are already under the wrath of God, 
that God is angry with their disposition because they've sinned against a mighty, holy, righteous God, and they will give an account. It is no longer their way, their thoughts, their wisdom, their plans. God says, surrender. Die to self, die to pride, die to your ambitions, and surrender to the sovereign king of the universe. When you preach the gospel of Christ and truly proclaim it, you will have personal opposition, but you will also have public opposition. In the world we live in today, anybody can say anything they want. They can talk about their philosophy, they can talk about their religion, they can talk about their deviancy and proclaim it. But the moment you claim absolute exclusive truth, and the moment you say that I believe Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Savior, that he is the only way, you know what happens? There's an attempt to silence you because all of those tolerant people become very intolerant about what you just said, which baffles me. They're so tolerant, but when you say Jesus Christ is the only way, there is public pushback. And then, think about it, the gospel of Jesus Christ when it's proclaimed, there is pushback from the powers of darkness. If this morning we really believe that there's a battle raging for the souls of men and women, for the eternal souls of men and women, and that the church of Jesus Christ has been given a mandate that the gates of hell cannot prevail our attack, and we are proclaiming truth, you better believe that the powers of darkness are not happy and there will be pushback. There will be hostility when the gospel is proclaimed. But I want you to know this. Hostility or opposition does not hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't. A matter of fact, the light shines brightest in the darkest night. And the hand of our God is not shortened that he cannot save. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And those of us who stand will face that. We should not be surprised. This morning, when you are confronted as you preach the gospel, do not be surprised when you are mocked, when you are vilified, when you are made fun of, when you are misunderstood. We should not be surprised. We should not see it as a stumbling block. For many of us, the first time there's pushback in our faith, we cower in a corner in the fetal position and cry ourselves to sleep. And Paul says, I will not do that. We must stay the course, come what may. When the opportunity arises for gospel ministry, understand there will be opposition, and that's when we must stand. Listen to the words of Martin Luther. He says, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, or suffers nothing is worth nothing. And so this morning, if you are going to proclaim the gospel, there will be great opportunity, but there will be opposition. And let me just say this. If this morning you are going to live a gospel-centric life, which says, I'm a believer And in my belief, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to allow him to change me. There will be pushback for you. And for many of us, we're surprised at this. Some of you dear folks, you trusted Christ as Savior, and you thought as soon as you got saved, life would be easy. You thought that would be a bed of roses. You thought that it would be smooth sailing. You thought that now that it's you and Jesus walking along the path, everything would be fine. And my friend, that's just not the case. We fight the world. We fight flesh. We fight the devil. And so there's a problem. Some of us, after we're saved, we think that the sanctification process will be easy. Then all of a sudden, I won't be tempted by sin or I'll conquer sin. And now we find in our lives we're battling the same sin. Or a new sin crops up that we've not faced before. And, so, and some of us, even in our social lives, 
it's scary. We live in a world where no one finishes anything. 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 We get tired. We get discouraged. We get depressed. And we quit. We just quit. We quit on marriages. We quit on relationships. We quit on jobs because there's a little bit of opposition. This was foreign to Paul. He continued to keep on keeping on. And many of us are the first sign of tension, the first sign of work, the first sign of sweat. We are finished. Paul says this hostility is good for us. My friend, you and I will never be anything spiritually mature unless there is pushback in our lives, unless there's opposition. Um, if you exercise and you want it to gain muscle, there must be resistance. And for too many of us, we're weak because every time opposition comes to proclaiming the gospel or living out the gospel, we are done. Some of you dear folks, you love your kids and you say things like this. My life was so hard growing up. We had to work for everything. Right? Wasn't that our generation? Nothing was given to you. You worked hard. You paid for your own stuff. Um, There was no past. And you say, that was hard for me. I had to work hard. I had to buy my own clothes. I had to pay for my own insurance. I had to buy my own car. I had to do all these things. And because of that, for my kids, I don't want them to struggle like I struggled. And I understand the idea of that, that you think you love your kids, and, and that's I don't want them to struggle. But let me remind you that the fact that you struggled and had to pay for your own stuff and work hard made you the man or woman that you are today. And what you're doing by giving your kids a pass is you're allowing them to perpetuate their immaturity. They'll never grow strong. They'll never be what God has intended them to be. And Paul says, there is great opportunity. But there is great opposition. Now, as we close this morning, I, I just want to say something to you. I, I think sometimes we think, Okay, this is one of those messages where you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just work harder, don't quit, stop crying, quit whining, man up, be what you're supposed to be, finish the job. It's not. I think we need that sometimes, but that's not this kind of message. Because there was something in Paul that he realized when this great opportunity presents itself and this great opposition, I will not be shaken. What was Paul's answer? We found it when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 last two, couple weeks ago now. Remember what he says there? He says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding, because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And for Paul, the reason he could face opposition and opportunity and embrace it, and, and, and not only embrace it, but to flourish in it, because he knew in his heart and his mind that what he was doing was not in vain. Believer this morning, Listen to me. When you face opposition, we must realize and reckon to be true for ourselves that what Paul believed, what Paul practiced is true for us. That, that, that he knew that everything he did, gospel proclamation, gospel living, was not in vain. He really knew and believed that Jesus Christ died for his sins according to the scripture. That Jesus rose again. That Jesus has power over death and the grave. And that death is swallowed up in victory. Therefore... Proclaiming his gospel and being pushed back on that is okay. Therefore, dying to yourself and living for others is okay. 
Therefore, anything that you do for the cause of Christ is not empty. It is not worthless. And many of us are, are losing and disqualifying ourselves from great reward because great opportunities are there. They're in your face every day. And the first moment, there's pushback. The first mo- time that someone laughs at you or scoffs you or you have tension, you stop. Paul says, not for me. Because everything that I do that's for the Lord is not in vain. I think Paul would have agreed with this last quote from a theologian. Um, you may have heard of this theologian before. His name is Rocky Balboa. And he said, it ain't about how hard you get hit. It's about how hard you get hit and keep moving forward. If, if God presents you with opportunity, listen to me. It will not be smooth sailing. It won't be. An opportunity to proclaim Christ to a co-worker, to a family member, to a neighbor, there will be opposition. If, if, if you have opportunity in gospel living to die to yourself as a man, as a father, to give of yourself, to live for others, there will be opposition. You will take a hit, and you will take repeated hits. And the problem with most of us is when that comes, we're done but not for Paul. Because he knew for every hit he took, he was working for the kingdom of Christ. And everything that he did for God's kingdom was worth it. And so this morning, let me encourage you, brother or sister in Christ, we have a work to do. We must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will get pushed back. You will. And it's good for you. It matures you in your faith, in your Christian walk, in in your spiritual maturity. Don't stop. And if you leave this place this morning as a believer saying, I, I want to live a gospel-centric life. I want that to be the case in my life. I want to die to myself. I want to follow Christ. When you do that, you will be misunderstood. You will get pushback. There are people who think you're crazy. Don't stop. Don't stop. You take the hit and you keep going forward because all that is done for the cause of Christ is not in vain. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.